Welcome to the sermon podcast from North Decatur United Methodist Church, where all are welcomed and included, connected with God and with one another, and sent out in service and invitation to the world. Each week we bring you the most recent sermon from me, Patrick Fallhaber, or from guest preachers. Thank you for listening and subscribing. Well, thank you for that art. It's hard to go into a completely different message straight off the bat. It is, it is. And that is what we're talking about today. So um, just for context as we get into the, the scripture for today, uh, we, through the next month, are going to be talking about distinctive attributes of the United Methodist Church, which sounds super boring when I say it like that. But it's important because the question that I keep getting, is, the questions that I keep getting are about what is happening in the United Methodist Church. And as we come back to school, get into a rhythm, and start figuring out where we are, I want to be able to answer some of those questions. So today, we're talking about the uh, most inspirational aspect of the United Methodist Church, which is connectionalism. Very exciting, right? I know we're all very excited about that conversation, but fundamentally, connectionalism is what the big argument in the United Methodist Church right now is all about. What does it mean to be connected? What does it mean to rely on a, the structures of conferences and uh, uh, bishops and an appointment system? And what exactly is a trust clause? We're going to talk about all those things because I want you all to know what is happening. Cool? And then we'll move from there to get into, oh, okay, there's some excitement, which is weird, but uh, hopefully others will join you by the end of, by the end of these, these next couple of weeks. To give us some context, I want to dive into scripture. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at the 12th verse. Christ is just like the human body. A body is a unit and has many parts, and all the parts of the body are one body, even though there are many we were all baptized in one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, and we all were given one spirit to drink. Certainly, the body isn't one part, but many. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that mean that it's not a part of the body? Or if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, does that mean that it's not a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, what would happen to the hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, what would happen to the sense of smell? But as it is, God has placed each one of the parts in the body just like he wanted. If all were one and the same body part, what would happen to the body? But as it is, there are many parts, but one body. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or in return, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Instead, the parts of the body that people think are the weakest are the most necessary. The parts of the body that we think are less honorable are the ones that we honor the most. The private parts of our body that aren't presentable are the ones that are given the most dignity. The parts of our bodies that are presentable don't need this. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the part with less honor so that there won't be division in the body, 
and so the parts might have mutual concern for each other. If one part suffers, all of the parts suffer with it. If one part gets the glory, all the parts celebrate with it. You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer, so that whether it's because of me or even in spite of me, it will still be your word that is faithfully proclaimed in your name that is glorified. Amen. I have this compulsion pretty frequently to think that I have gotten where I am because of my own efforts. Anybody else feel that way sometimes? Like, I've been through school. I've had to uh, do the work to show up. Like, when, you know, when I was a college athlete, I, I was the one waking up at 5 o'clock to go on a run or to go into the gym. I was the one doing all of those things. When I came to serve in a church, I was just frustrated to have to jump through the hoops of all the ordination standards because I had already done all of my study. I was confident in my call and in the work that I was capable of doing. I could do all of these things through Christ who strengthens me, but I could do all of these things because I put the right effort in. This is something we learn from an early age, especially here in America. If you grew up in here, this is something we just, it's just part of the soup. The life that we live in day to day is this idea of fierce independence. The idea that you can pull your own self up by your own bootstraps to land in any position that you want to land in. There is nothing outside the realm of possibility. My, my parents taught me that from a young age, and culture taught me that from a young age. And it, that can feel true sometimes because the stories that get elevated more and more frequently are the ones where people do become a success on their own work. You know, we tell the beautiful stories about someone who grew up or experienced homelessness and then became a CEO of a Fortune 500 company just by grit, sheer grit and power on their own sake. It's this need to center our own experience and that our own lives are independent of anything else that goes around us that I think is what at the heart of the biggest problems that we experience here in America. That I can do it myself. I don't need you. And in the church where this becomes most potentially dangerous is when we start experiencing other people who believe differently from us, who have different experiences of God, who don't necessarily articulate their faith the same way. And then because I'm so sure of myself, I start to push you away because I just can't deal. So then what we land with is a bunch of churches that are filled with people who all think the same thing, believe the same way, talk about God the same way. And then we have a bunch of other folks who end up landing in their own just private prayer life and who haven't been to church in years, if not decades, because they just didn't want to deal with competing frameworks and beliefs. 
Now, I want to say, like, the parentheses here is that church harm is real. And sometimes in faith communities, there are people who insist that you need to agree with them. Otherwise, you're wrong and outside the kingdom of God. If that's the case, thank God you walked away from it. Like, that is not of God. But to be in a space where we can disagree with faithfulness is important. And so at the beginning of the United Methodist movement, there was this guy named John Wesley, who was an Episcopal, preach, an Episcopal priest who started learning from some other preachers in the same time and era. He grew up in the church. He attended Oxford College. He had become a very important person himself, had his own office, which ironically has been memorialized. If you go to Oxford College, there's... His office is maintained as though it were still the 18th century, which is not what he would have wanted, I can assure you, but it is what exists. But he, he started trying to discern what God was calling him to do, and he started watching and observing other preachers like a guy named George Whitfield, who seemed to be operating outside the mold. Instead of preaching from a pulpit in most churches of the era that were elevated up, he started preaching in cemeteries and public parks and the center square just outside of the bar speaking to people in their real life and then calling them into something that they called the methods the means of grace which we'll talk about next week but fundamentally what he found in the 18th century in England was that there was a group of privileged elites of society who are consistently worshiping together on Sunday mornings in their finest clothing, doing the finest of things, speaking with the finest of language. And then there was everybody else outside of the church who wasn't fit to be in the church on Sunday mornings, who'd been excluded from the community of faith, excluded from the church, and in many ways, had been pushed to the side and marginalized by society as a whole. And John Wesley saw his work at bridging the gap. And as soon as he started trying to bridge the gap between the elite in 18th century Britain and the marginalized in that same community, he started to be rebuked by the people in power. Because polite society shouldn't carouse with society that meets in the pub. So he started trying to bridge, and what that meant is, in a very long story that I'm shortening way too much, he essentially got kicked out of the Episcopal Church, the Church of England of the day, because of his passion for broadening and expanding what the community of faith could be. And when he got kicked out of the Church of England, he and a gentleman by the name of Francis Asbury here in America started trying to figure out how to hold churches together that were very different in the way that they structure themselves, the way they think about who they are, the way that their community is set up. They had to think about communities in Savannah, Georgia, and communities in Boston, Massachusetts, and figure out how to hold these churches together. And so they started instituting little rules 
that became the Book of Discipline, but in its early days was made up of a tiny book you could fit in your pocket. Now it's much larger, um, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> But basically what they needed to do was figure out a way to hold churches accountable to some standards, clergy accountable to some standards, without coming up with such a rigid structure that people couldn't be who they were. So it stands in this sort of middle spot. The Church of England had a lot of high expectations on what everybody was supposed to be. Our, especially, and as America was growing, the idea of a fierce and independent colony of people who are free to do whatever I want to do, uh, on the other end of that spectrum. And John Wesley trying to stand in the middle to be the bridge between these two ideals of fierce independence and rigid structure. So they created this idea of connectionalism, which isn't unique to the United Methodist Church, but is particular in the way that we practice it. In the United Methodist Church, here's some weird, or not weird, but some things y'all need to know. I could move at any point, not because I want to, but because that's the way the church operates. In the Methodist Church, we operate under what's called an itinerant system, which is a long-standing pattern of moving uh, pastors with gifts and skills, Thank you. <laughs> uh, to communities that need those particular gifts and skills. And then the same is, other, is, is true in other ways. Churches with particular gifts and skills get paired with pastors who might have that as a deficit to either learn or to fill that gap. And what ends up happening in the ide most ideal situation, all these parentheses are really freaking me out, but they're important. <laughs> Because it doesn't always work perfectly, but the ideal situation is you end up with pastors who are equipped to meet the needs of a church that is equipped already to do the work that God has called a community of faith to do well. And so those pairs are really important. And so for a long time, it was a habit for pastors to move from one church to another, even week to week. Because there was an understanding that any pastor you received would be preaching the same theology holding to the same expectations around the means of grace, helping to empower the congregation to be the very best that it could be. And then over time, those itinerancies, those times appointed to churches grew longer and longer and longer. And now I've been here six years, which is a little beyond the norm, but that like, I'm grateful to be here. But that's how that, you see how it gets built out. And the point is, the, the church as a whole is trying to ensure that we have capable, strong, faithful theologians who are committed to what the United Methodist Church can be. Can be. Because the other part of connectionalism is the idea that the church sets its own rules. We don't operate, we do have a, a bishop, but the bishop's role here in the United Methodist Church has nothing to do with telling us what we have to do. The bishop oversees the work of the church, and the council of bishops 
takes decisions that are made by conferences uh, made up of clergy and lay folks. In fact, Charles, sitting back in the corner there, is our delegate to annual conference, which means that he is voting on any matter related to how our church is run at the conference level. You can talk to him all about this if you want to. <laughs> uh, but so Charles and I both have an equal voice and vote at annual conference. It's not designated by the clergy. The bishop can't set that agenda. It is set by church folks and pastors coming together to make decisions, which means it's really messy. All of that has led us to a place now where we have a lot of pastors, particularly in the Southeast, who have grown to believe and to teach that where these churches have gotten has nothing to do with the work that's come before as a part of the connectional structure. So the Methodist Church right now is splintering into factions. There was a... It seemed like there might be two equal parts. One large group staying United Methodist, and then another large group becoming what is now called the Global Methodist Church. The Global Methodist Church has, is committed to a traditional stance around um, all things related to scripture and theology, but the one that is at the heart of the matter is around sexuality um, and gender. So, gosh, there's so much to talk about here, Rachel. Do you just want to talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, back in 1968, two denominations merged together into one, creating the United Methodist Church. The uh, Methodist Episcopal Church South, which is called the Methodist Episcopal Church South, on purpose because it was the denomination that split apart much earlier in order to maintain slavery as an okay practice. The Methodist Episcopal Church South merged with the larger denomination of mostly the sort of Northeast, the Evangelical Brethren, and created a new denomination. Out of that, there was some uh, words of healing. There were some statements of... Um, you know, we can do better than what we have been. And really, the idea is that we can do things better together than we can apart. And if we're trying to move into the next phase of our life together, if we merge the gifts of these two denominations into one, we can come up with something better. And there's a lot of faithful work to be done there. The problem, though, you can see in our book of discipline. Because if you look at our theological standards and you look at what we believe and where, where we've come from, you have two different histories and statements of belief that agree with each other in total but are still listed separately. So you have the Evangelical Brethren statement of faith and then the Methodist Episcopal Church South statements of faith. And they're basically the same thing, but they were never merged together. which creates problems because it's not actually a united theology. It's still two separate denominations that are coming together around a conversation of what faithfulness together could look like. 
calling itself a new denomination. And so four years later, after this merger, there was a, a statement that was brought to the floor around the idea of naming the sacred worth of all human lives, including LGBTQ folks. And when that was brought forward, there was a petition made from the floor to add to that statement that practicing homosexuality goes against scripture and against faithfulness. That's when that happened. There was a move to make an inclusive statement and then a movement from the floor to create a barrier around it. Since 1972, we've been debating that language in our book of discipline. That's a long time to have every four years at a general conference having a debate about what we mean by the sacred worth of all people and then a barrier around what that, that means. It's a long time. And that fundamentally is at the heart of why our church is splitting. There was a lot of expectation that the progressive churches would leave after the last vote in 2019. The progressive churches have decided they're not going to let anybody take the United Methodist Church from them. So they're staying and they're advocating for that language to be changed. And there's a lot of work to be done there, but that's happening. And all of the more, more traditionally minded, more conservative churches are splitting and becoming their own thing. And this is where I think it's interesting to talk about independence because many of those churches were thought to join a new denomination, the Global Methodist Church, but instead most of them are staying independent. Because our fundamental flaw in America is thinking we could do it all ourselves. But I know the truth in my own life. I mean, it's weird to look out in this congregation because my, my advisor in seminary is sitting right there, two-thirds of the back, who helped me think about what it means to be United Methodist and some directed study. And I'm sorry for where I've come, but thank you for your guidance. The guy who brought me into this annual conference from North Carolina is sitting up in the balcony who created space for me when there really was none to be had. We, none of us get where we are by, by accident. There's people in our lives who shepherd us and shape us, create space for us, encourage us to disagree well. That's an important part of what it means to be, to be faithful. Just yesterday, I was... Uh, leading a workshop on how to create safe spaces for folks who've experienced church trauma as their church is disaffiliated. And one of our uh, staff, Rachel, was sitting in meetings watching those disaffiliation votes happen as a representative of our district here. And even just earlier this week, a member of this church presented our United Methodist Church's vision for missionaries going into the next season of the global ministry. Like, and sitting just over here, we have um, uh, Jack, who's responsible for observing and offering vision about what it means 
to, for people to migrate from home to a new place of work. All of this is connected, not by accident. When churches are healthy and faithful and good, it means that we've learned from the past. It means that we maintain our relationships to move forward. And it means so much more than just being decent church partners. Connectionalism, when it's at its healthiest, means that we share a common vision. Our United Methodist Church's vision is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Every Methodist church around the world shares that vision, that the world can be better than what it is. And that I can't do that myself. We have to share in that work. So what it means to be connected is to allow space for disagreement while also offering grace to be able to move forward faithfully. And when those things come in tension because of personalities or because of my need to be right, we start getting into the kind of tension that leads us to an obvious split. So as I said, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more deeply about what it means to be United Methodist. Next week, we're going to talk about the means of grace and the methods that hold congregations and hold our faithful life together. But just, we, I've already talked too long about this, but I do want to encourage you, if you have questions about the split, there's a lot more information to know, and I'm happy to share it. It just probably isn't all sermon fodder. Um, but I am happy to talk about it. As I said, we've got a lot of folks in this church who know even more information than I do. I mean, not to point her out, but Rachel is in all those closed door meetings about what is happening at General Conference. And I know that as much as she's able to share, she would be happy to. And Anne, who's been leading the Methodist Church from Candler School of Theology, who hates that I just said that out loud, uh, also has more information than I do about the history of this work and what's been done in that time frame. So please talk to these people. There are experts in this room who understand this work. And my hope is that our church will continue to learn more about what is happening, but also to maintain our sense of wholeness here in North Decatur, but also here in our North Georgia conference, which is is really hurting right now. And I know there are many people in this room who understand what it means to be hurt by a church. So we need to be in deep prayer for folks who are watching their families and their communities split apart from them. So uh, I hope that you'll join me in that work. I know this is a weird sermon. It's more informational than it is hopeful, but we do not get where we are on our own. It is because of God's grace that we are in this place, and it is because of good neighbors along the way who've shepherded us well. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon from North Decatur United Methodist Church. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at ndumc.org.